Christianity without Christ is really evil. Hello, friends, and welcome. Welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. You know, I think we really need to embrace how doomed we really are. Trying to live as a Christian, trying to imitate Jesus, can be so depressing and just so frustrating. Because you can never be good enough. You can never attain, no matter how good your day goes or how good you you think you've done. There was always a moment, there was always some area where you could have done better because we're, we're incapable of attaining to that perfection. We're in these broken bodies where our greatest enemy is ourself. And so trying to live the Christian life apart from Christ is totally, totally depressing because it's impossible. It's an exercise in futility. And the sooner we accept that fact, the sooner we can get on to enjoying God's purpose for us in Christ and God's great love for us. Because Christianity without Christ is really evil, actually. It just would drive a person crazy to always try to be attaining to something to a moral standard or to a standard of perfection to try and to become like Christ, but to realize not only can't I do it, uh, not only is basically the whole world opposed to me being transformed into the image of Christ, not only do I have a spiritual adversary in the devil and all his demons and unclean spirits that are opposed to me becoming like Christ, but my greatest enemy is actually my own body and i'm trapped in this body that is drawn toward wickedness and is still has appetites for ungodliness and so my greatest enemy in becoming like christ is myself jesus said in matthew 5:48 you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and when we labor in the flesh to try and get there is just so discouraging. It's just so frustrating because everything we do, everything we touch just uh, falls apart. Romans 8, 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In Galatians five seventeen, it says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So it's, it's such a bummer to realize that your greatest foe in becoming like Christ is your own body. It's you. And Christianity can become just a huge downer, just a huge religious act that makes us into really bitter, angry people because we know deep down that we're never measuring up. Or really arrogant, unpleasant people because we falsely think that we are measuring up. And both of those scenarios are dangerous if we try and do our Christianity apart from Christ. And so that's why it's so critical for us to embrace as quickly as possible how completely doomed we are and how completely incapable we are 
of living the Christian life. Ian Thompson wrote, only Christ is capable of living the Christian life for the very obvious and simple reason that he is the Christian life. In John 14, 6, Jesus famously said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the sooner we realize and embrace how doomed we are, the sooner we can come to Christ and make him the center of everything and realize that it's Christ that qualifies us, that it's Christ that makes me worthy, that in Christ God is not counting my sin against me. And in my experience, if we mix a little bit of Christ, a little bit of grace, and then try and add on my efforts and my labors in the flesh to try and get God's approval and be special to God, the result is just failure and depression and frustration. Paul kind of taunts the Galatians about this in Galatians chapter 3 verse 3 says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In Colossians 2.6, he writes, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So usually when we receive Christ, we come very empty-handed and open-handed and, and just recognize that you know, there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. And yet, as we continue in Christ, somehow, in my own life anyway, I forget how completely doomed I am apart from Christ and how there's nothing in me that could ever be pleasing to God and that my only hope of pleasing God is Christ himself and my only place of right standing and confidence before God is that he has given to me the righteousness of Jesus as a gift and that he made Jesus become sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God and I have to embrace that and remind myself of that over and over and over again. Not only on the side of how desperately doomed I am apart from Christ, but also on the side of how completely accepted and righteous and holy God has made me in Christ. And then it's out of embracing that grace that the empowering energy comes to live out the Christian life and to be like Christ, not from a place of trying to attain to something, but from a place of having already attained it. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 10, he says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In Philippians 3.16, Paul's exhorting them and he says, let us hold true to what we have attained. And what is it that we've attained? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we have attained perfection. In verse 10, it says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we have been gifted right standing before God. We have been gifted righteousness, a righteousness that is apart from the law. It's apart from keeping a certain code of conduct. So we're not in the flesh trying to keep a certain code of conduct. 
And yet that grace at work in our lives compels us to act in certain ways and compels us to make our calling and election sure. This is described in Second Peter, where Peter is talking about uh, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So it's through Jesus that God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's granted us these precious promises so that we may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So we've already escaped this corruption. We've already been perfected in Christ. So Second Peter says, to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So the order is paramount, that you have been forgiven, you have been perfected. And so now this grace leads us and, and draws us into maturity, into being transformed from one degree of glory to another, into adding uh, one degree of these qualities onto another, that we have these qualities and they're ever increasing in us because we're being transformed to become like Jesus, not because we're trying to attain to the righteousness of Christ, we're trying to become like him so that we can receive God's approval, but because we already have God's approval and from the Father's perspective, we are already as righteous as Christ is. And so because he has given us this great grace, because he has already made us partakers of the divine nature, then we are being transformed and we're making every effort to make our election sure. And here we see that tension between kind of the more Calvinist-leaning God's sovereign choice and the Arminian-leading man's free will that we're, we're making our election sure. So for certain, there is an act of God that is completely unmerited. It's something that God did. And then there is also a response on our part to confirm our calling and our election uh, by letting this grace have its way in us. And Paul warns the Colossians in uh, 2.18, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, talking about Jesus, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. And so Paul also warns that we should not be disqualified. And, and how do we become disqualified? We become disqualified through becoming disconnected to the head, through trying to labor in ourselves and not let the grace of God labor in us. And, and we say, oh, well, what's the, what's the difference? Because externally, those things could look the same. I think no one can know the actual difference except ourselves. And we know when we're laboring as a, a work of the flesh, 
trying to accomplish something so that we can feel good about ourselves or so that we can feel special before God. And we know when we're laboring just because we're beloved by God and we love being part of his family and we're just responding to grace. You know, one is marked by that striving, by that competition, by that comparison. And one is marked by true joy and peace. One wants to be acknowledged and, and wants people to see. And, and it has that uh, pharisaical, critical spirit and, and that desire to be praised by men. And one doesn't care at all about that. It's happy to be anonymous. It's, it prefers to be unseen and just to labor quietly before the Lord. And so we make our election sure by receiving the grace of God that God has given us all that we need in His Son, Christ Jesus, through the knowledge of His Son, that we get to become a partaker of the divine nature. And it's that, that, that grace that causes us to obey quickly, joyfully, and completely. It causes us to turn aside, like it talks about Moses when he saw the burning bush, that he turned aside. That in those moments when we sense the Holy Spirit doing something, we're willing to be turned aside. Jesus said that everyone who is born of the Spirit is, is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. That when the Holy Spirit moves us, we're willing to be attentive to that wind of the Holy Spirit. We're willing to raise the sail and catch the wind of the Holy Spirit and go wherever He may take us. That we pay attention to the pricks. When Paul gave his testimony and he talked about uh, his encounter on the road to Damascus with the Lord. And the Lord asked him, is it easy for you to kick against the goads, those, uh, those pricks of conscience, those, those moments when the Lord is redirecting us, we're quick to obey him. We're quick to do what he is calling us to. And, and we make it our joy. And we're not laboring to try and prove anything or to try and become something. But we're letting grace in us labor because we already are that thing we already are the beloved child of god and that grace is manifesting in our lives and so because of it we we drop everything to obey god we we try and keep our hearts soft toward god as i've said sin hardens our hearts it doesn't harden uh, god's heart toward us it hardens our hearts toward god and so our our actions don't determine our standing before God. Our good deeds cannot make us righteous. They cannot make us more loving or, or more lovable. And likewise, our bad deeds cannot make us less righteous. They cannot make us less lovable to God. But that grace in us compels us to become like Christ. And when we fail, we just rejoice in the goodness and the kindness and the love of God and the power of Jesus' blood and the cross of Christ that has already covered our sins, already paid for all of our sins. Every sin that we're going to commit for the rest of our life has already been covered, paid for, and forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. In his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, uh, it talks about Brother Lawrence, and it says, When he had failed in his duty, he only confessed his fault, saying to God, I shall never do otherwise if you leave me to myself. It is you who must hinder my falling and mend what is amiss. So Brother Lawrence, of course, the classic account of being attentive to God moment to moment and living our lives in the joy of being accepted by God, not trying to become acceptable to God, but living out of the joy of already being accepted to God. 
and we embrace how doomed we are, that we can never, ever become like Christ. And we embrace the grace that God gives to us, that he has made us the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made Christ to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we recognize that we could never become like Christ and that it's only through God's grace, it's only through him imparting righteousness to us through the new covenant. And then we realize I am as Christ to God. I am as righteous as Christ. And we let that grace draw us into holiness and draw us into a life of living pleasing to God because that is in fact what we are. And it is teaching counter to that, the teaching that uh, I mentioned from Colossians chapter 2 that does not hold fast to the head, uh, that does not hold fast to Christ and, and letting Christ live the Christian life through us, recognizing that I am dead, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Christ I am completely dead and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so recognizing that we have died in Christ, the things that were displeasing about our life to God, all of those things have been crucified with Christ. And now the life I live, I live through Christ. I live resurrected in the Son of God. And so any teaching that's disconnected from that, any teaching that uh, causes us to strike out apart from the head. Any teaching that pulls us away is an antichrist teaching. And in modern evangelicalism, we tend to think of the antichrist as a single individual. But uh, in First John chapter 2, it talks about that uh, the antichrist is coming, and so now many antichrists have come. And he said, who is the antichrist? The antichrist is the one that denies Jesus has come in the flesh. So the Antichrist, uh, to the New Testament readers, were teachers who were either denying that Jesus was God's son, they were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh, they were saying that Jesus was uh, just uh, a spirit, and uh, so like the Gnostics, they were saying Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, or they were like the Judaizers who were saying that uh, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you still need to be circumcised. And so the Antichrist were those teachers who were teaching things that were against the completeness of Christ, the all-sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is enough. And so anytime we take uh, anything away from Christ, or anything that we try, anytime we try to add something to Christ, we become part of that Antichrist spirit. Uh, the idea that the Antichrist was one single person was actually popularized much, much later. It started uh, when Martin Luther and other reformers uh, believed that the papal system uh, was the Antichrist, and they referred to the, the Pope in Rome as the beast or as the whore of Babylon. And so uh, as a response to that, there was a Jesuit priest, Francisco Ribera, who published a long work, and that work in some ways became the foundation for modern in-time views. But that, that work actually didn't gain any momentum in Ribera's lifetime. It was later... Uh, his writing 
Uh, Ribera was around 1585, and later his writing was rediscovered by a guy named Samuel Maitland. He was the librarian to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he rediscovered Ribera's manuscript and published it. And when the book was published, a man named John Darby read it and embraced this teaching by uh, this Jesuit um, priest who was refuting the accusations of the reformers. And so Darby seized onto this concept of the Antichrist as a single individual that was coming in the future. And that view was then picked up by the Schofield Study Bible. And the Schofield Study Bible uh, was one of the first Bibles that had a full kind of Bible commentary in the Bible. And it became very, very popular and uh, spread all over the United States and spread into evangelicalism. And so uh, I talked about that a couple of podcasts ago when I talked about how market forces have shaped our beliefs about God. And that's a problem because um, not all of the most truthful ideas are the most profitable and not, uh, and maybe the most profitable ideas are not the most truthful, but we can get these ideas that are accepted in the marketplace. Uh, they become, you know, best-selling books and they become, they, they take on a life of their own, uh, but they're really disconnected from the truth of scripture. And so that was a bit of an aside on uh, what it, what, what an antichrist is. Uh, but the point is, sorry for that long aside, but the, the point is that we don't want anything in our life to oppose Christ. Christ is the fullness. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes, as Paul said, and Christ is enough. And once we embrace how doomed we are apart from Christ, we can also embrace how complete we are in Christ and we can live out of that assurance, out of that peace with God. Uh, uh, Paul talked about in Romans chapter 5 that in Christ we have peace with God now. And, uh, you know, First John talks about that. In love there is no fear because fear has to do with punishment. We are adequate in Christ and we don't have to labor to become something more to God. God has accepted us and His grace in us causes us to make our election sure. It causes us, it compels us to be a co-laborer with Christ, not laboring for something, but laboring from something, laboring from being beloved and accepted and perfected through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and just embracing the fullness of that and knowing that God is pleased with us and living out of that reality. And the temptation is, the Antichrist temptation, is to try and pull us away from that reality and say, no, it's not enough. You need to try harder. You need to do better. Or, um, you know, or uh, another Antichrist teaching would be to say, yeah, it's it's fine. You, you are in Christ, and so the way you live doesn't matter. Uh, go ahead and, you know, commit any kind of sexual sin that you want to commit because Christ is enough. And that's another Antichrist teaching. That's another heresy that um, Paul also warned against because that would be a natural response if, um, you know, if you think, okay, well, God's pleased with me no matter what, then it doesn't matter how I live. And Paul said, no, it, it does matter how you live, not because God will reject you, but because you give place to the enemy in your life. Paul said that whoever you offer yourself to obey, you become a servant 
of that person. So you don't want to become a servant of sin. And Hebrews warns us that sin hardens our heart. And uh, Paul says that in Galatians, we won't inherit the fullness of the kingdom that God wants to give us if we walk in the flesh. So there are many reasons that the Bible lays out that we should flee from sin, we should resist the devil, um, but among those reasons is not God's displeasure or God rejecting us or God uh, bringing his judgment upon us because Christ has received all of the judgment for our sin in his body on the cross. Praise be to God for that reality. May God give us grace to walk in it and to embrace how doomed we are apart from Christ and then to realize how completely beloved and accepted we are in him. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you.